Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails, but first let's introduce the podcast. This is called the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. And also, I want to say that I'm working on a number of deep dives. I sent a survey to all the patrons, and thank you for everyone who responded. About 100 people responded. And the deep dive that won was narcissistic personality disorder. So I'm currently working on that. And then after that, I'm going to do suicide assessment. I was surprised that so many people wanted to um, get a deep dive on that. And then perfectionism, which I was also surprised with. But... Uh, happy to dive into. So I have narcissistic personality disorder, suicide assessment, and perfectionism, and others that I have on my list. And also, if you could pro- if you could refrain from requesting deep dives from me for a while until I get through this list, it will make me feel better. Because whenever people ask for things, particularly patrons, I always add it to the list because I feel like you deserve it because you're deserving. And I, my, my list is just getting larger and larger and it just feels sort of looming over my head. So, uh, suffice to say, I have a number of deep dives that are already on the list. And how about I just let you know when I've run out of ideas for deep dives, (laughs) shorter questions are always appreciated. If you have short questions, like some of the questions I'm going to talk about today are easily answered in a short way. Uh, either you can make it just for me or you can make it for me and Berto or Rebecca or Bob or whoever. So uh, let's get into this right now. Patron Rachel wrote, uh, she wants advice for how to respond to email requests. Uh, she basically, she, she has a blog, a, a sci- data science blog, and she's been getting a lot of emails and she says that in the beginning, it was easy to respond, but over time, she got more and more emails, and some of the, the questions she gets require a lot of time to respond. Like some people will email her and say, how, you know, how do I get a career in data science or something? And she's like, uh, that's a big question. And so she, she, doesn't, she heard me talking about how I always respond to every email and how she was asking how I do that. And so what I'll say to that is that I enjoy it a lot. It, it doesn't feel like a chore at all. When listeners email me, it, it's often a, a very pleasurable experience. YouTube comments are a whole other ball of wax. There, there are a few YouTubers like um, Sunny Pie, I think that's the person's name, and, and a few other people on YouTube that are are nice and appropriate and not dicks. But there, there's a lot of weird YouTube comments. I've talked about it before. But anyway, emails are almost universally interesting to read, informative. People have good questions. People are nice. So it's really um, not a big deal. It Some mornings it takes me, I don't know, an hour or two or something. And um, I, I don't know. I just consider it part of the part of the whole ball of wax of, of being a podcaster. Um, and I think I'm also kind of used to that mode because I, as a professor, uh, as time has gone on, I've become much more emailing with students as opposed to meeting with them in person. So because of just, it's so much easier for students to email me than to set an appointment for like three weeks in the future and blah, blah, blah. So I, I get a lot of emails at work as a program director in the past. That's That was my entire life was just emailing different administrators and lawyers and other programs. And just, it was just a constant networking thing. And so I don't know, I, I think I'm just used to it. Uh, another thing about my setup is is my computer. I think I've talked about this before. I don't understand how people operate on laptops. I mean, laptops are extremely convenient, right? They're small, lightweight. You can, you know, you travel with them, blah, blah, blah. But the keyboard is not ideal, and the screen is not ideal. And there's, whenever I'm, I'm at, so at work, I have a laptop at the university. I just have a laptop. Uh, 
but at home I have this desktop and it, and I love my desktop and I love my desk. I have I have a very particular desk that I chose that has a lot of space and I have a comfortable chair that I've had for 20 years that I've been using all the time. It's not one of those office chairs, you know, that has wheels on the bottom. It actually has feet that like keeps me on the ground. And and when I sit in this chair that I'm sitting in right now, by the way, and I, you know, have my nice big keyboard that's, you know, very easy to use. The the process of emailing, and I have this gigantic uh, computer screen too, that I, I've always preferred gigantic computer screens just because, um, I don't know, I just like it better. <laughs> and when I when I find myself emailing and going over different things from my desktop at my very comfortable desk in my very comfortable chair, I have a big window that looks out over nature um, out, out my window. And I find that when I'm on my laptop, I really get tired of emailing people. <laughs> it's just, it's such a different vibe that I get. And so, I, and I find that without cuz i'm i'm an old person 47 and i i grew up at a time when laptops were either not invented or they were just inconvenient and and not really something you did everyone had desktops for a long time and so i'm just really accustomed to desktops whereas there are younger people who have never had a desktop they've only had laptops and so when they think computer they think laptop and the idea of getting a desktop for them is totally ridiculous. They're just like, why would I get a huge tower with a separate, you know, mouse and a, you know, separate blah, blah, blah. That's the other thing is, is mouse, you know, it's just like, it's, I don't know. I find it to be a lot easier to use than a touchpad. I mean, some people are really go to the touchpads. Anyway, my point is, is that I find that my setup makes it, very sort of chill, you know, it's just a, it's a very relaxed, uh, ergonomic, comfortable kind of situation. So I think that's another factor. Um, plus, uh, when people ask me questions over email, I have to sometimes look up research or I have to look at notes that I've taken in the past. And if I was doing that all on my laptop, it would drive me nuts because it's just, again, it's a smaller screen, all that kind of stuff. Plus, another motivation for me is I, I listen to podcasts, too. I, I, I love podcasts. That's why I got into podcasting 10 years ago was because I was obsessed with podcasts uh, in 2007, 2008. And I have written different podcasts. You know, I'll, I'll write. I remember I wrote to the Stuff You Should Know podcast, guys, Um it's been a while since I've listened to that podcast, but, and I remember that if I remember right, this, this would have been a long time ago, but they didn't email me back. Uh, or if they did, it didn't feel very satisfying to me. And I found that as a listener and I, you know, I, I understand that they get probably thousands of emails a day. Yeah, I get all that, but there was something about the way that they responded that, it just kind of turned me off to them. Um, and, and I've written into other podcasts as well. And, 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 you know, cause to me, it's like, if you're super busy, all you have to say is something like, sorry, I'm super busy <laughs> or sorry, I couldn't read your entire email. I just read the first sentence and, you know, thanks for saying that. Or, you know, just, it takes, it can take you five seconds to do something like that. So, I find I find for myself that when people email me, I I really don't want people to feel that way about me. You know, I don't want people to feel like I don't care or that I'm not listening or that I don't want to hear from you or something. It just it it I know how much it it I and people will do this when they email me. They'll just be like, "So I know you probably get a bunch of emails, and I know you probably aren't going to respond and." Um, I know that my problems are, you know, nothing compared to other people's, but I just wanted to, you know, da, da. and then, and then I email them back usually, you know, within a day or two and they'll be like, Oh my God, I can't believe you emailed me back. And, you know, because I think there's just this expectation with 
podcasters or people in the media that they just they're too they're too busy or they're too high and mighty or something and and you know it's one thing about that's one thing I learned with Irvin Yalom which is why Rachel actually wrote me is because I was talking with Irvin Yalom about how we both wake up in the morning and respond to emails from people around the world and Irvin Yalom does the same thing he responds to emails and I got the impression that he responds to everyone and you know he's like a gigantic figure in our field and and I would imagine has better things to do, but probably feels similar uh, about interacting is actually kind of entertaining and also feeling bad for people who don't, um, you know, who don't, who, who are putting themselves out there. So now I will say that I do have a system for managing my time because some people will email me extremely long emails, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it, and confusing, like detailed, you know, where I'm, I really have to, it's almost like I'm in a therapy session and the person's in my office and I, and I'm trying to track what they're saying and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to respond and all this kind of stuff. And so it, as opposed to people who, you know, send me emails, really quick questions, you know, or comments. And I just, over the years, have just developed a system in terms of time management. You know, in the beginning, I would really read every email and, you know, spend time and da-da-da. And over time, I, I just decided that there are certain kinds of emails from certain people that I will spend time with and certain situations where I just figure, okay, well, what's the what's the most time economical way to do this. Um, you know, cause some people will ask me like a, an extremely detailed question that would really take a long time to answer and research for myself. And so I'll say something like, well, I don't really know that much about it. And, uh, but you know, here are just some thoughts I have, and maybe here's a resource you can look into as opposed to what I did in the past, which is, Oh, okay, well, let's look up the research. Let's get some cited sources and, you know, let's get some stats and blah, blah, blah. And that's just not going to be good. I would never have enough time for that as I did back in the day. So, or, or someone will ask me a really um, complicated question about their personal life. You know, people emailing me about that. They're being abused by their spouse and they don't, don't know what to do. And, and instead of getting super bogged down in like the details, I'll just, I'll just have, I, I can usually kind of sift through, well, what's the most salient advice I can give this person? And it'll, it'll be something along the lines of, well, you deserve to not be abused and it's great that you're reaching out. And I, I recommend you contact a, a domestic violence advocate in your area because they would be able to not only answer all your questions, but they'd be able to coach you and connect you and talk with you in person. Uh, you know, I'm, you're, I'm just a podcaster on the other side of the country and I'm not going to be able to do that for you. But, but if you contact this one person, they could actually walk you through this entire thing. And so, uh, so there's, there's responses that I'll give along those lines that really just don't take a lot of time. The other thing is, is uh, there are a lot of times people ask me very unique questions. Um, like the, the, this question, uh, from you, Rachel is the first time anyone's asked me anything about this, but sometimes people will ask questions that I've been asked before in, in essence. And so I just have a, uh, not a pat response, but I, I, I've responded before and I don't need to completely rethink the entire situation. I just, I have a, a general response. Um, anyway, so you ask me, patron Rachel, you're like, well, you know, how do I deal with this? And I guess it's, uh, uh, to me, this is my advice is, try to respond to everyone, uh, at least tell them that you don't have time. You know, there's, uh, to me, I think it's better to say something than nothing. It's better to say totally swamped. Sorry, I'll try to respond to this, but I might not have time or your question. Uh, it, uh, plus it's not, it's not uh, a bad thing. Just to be like, you're, you, you have great questions. I don't have the answers. I'm sorry. You know, I do that sometimes. I'm just like, you have awesome questions, and I'm just here to tell you that I'm, and I, 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 uh, 
appreciate the fact that you think I'm smart enough to to know the answer to that question, but I don't. I, I'm sorry. Uh, and I'm sorry that I'm not much help. So that's my advice for that. The other is, is, is it sounds like you get sort of similar questions from different emailers and, you know, maybe just developing a kind of set of responses, general responses you give. Okay. So another email is from uh, Ruben from Berlin, Berlin, Germany, I assume. Berlin, or Ruben writes, how do you find the motivation to spend time after work to do your podcasts? I bet many days you might be exhausted already. Um, yeah, it's it's a good question. People ask me that sometimes. It, w- it was particularly interesting, in, uh, I don't know, about five years ago when I was working full-time. I was basically program director of my program. I had a practice. I was getting um, my doctorate full-time. I was in a band, and I was doing a podcast, and I had friends that I hung out with. <laughs> and and people would ask me, it's just like, I don't get it. How, how do you have time for everything? I And I did a whole episode on time management, and it, it's it's a bit of a... I, you know, I've been talking lately about how, since I was young, I've been thinking about the fact that we're all going to die one day. And that has motivated me to do a number of things. But one of the things that's motivated me to do is like, I'm not going to waste my time on this planet. You know, I'll be damned if I'm going to waste my time doing some stupid chore that I don't want to do, or working at a job that I don't like, or uh, dealing with a friend or relationship that is wasting my time, because I have limited time on this planet. And and I guess I'm sort of selfish about that time. And, and so I, I became very, uh, I, I very slowly developed these, these routines of managing time. And, and, and also, I have a lot of energy. <laughs> um, my heart rate is faster than other people's. I, um, at night, after, you know, you, what I've observed with most people is there's sort of a, an hour of the day typically where they sort of wind down, you know, like six o'clock, seven o'clock, and they're just sort of wiped out and they can't really be productive. It's just time to veg in front of the TV or read a book or something. And for me, I don't have any, there, that never happens to me. I am completely energetic until I, and, and, and bedtime, I actually have to force myself to go to bed. I'm pretty sure Umberto's like this too. At night, I have to say, okay, go to bed. Cause if you don't, you're going to be tired tomorrow. Cause you're not, you, you won't get enough sleep because you have to wake up in the morning. And so every night for my, pretty much my entire life, I've had to say, go to bed and make yourself fall asleep. And if I, if I didn't do that, I'd be up till seven in the morning just because I, my biology is just such we, you know, in the business, we call it um, on the, on the mania, hypomania scale. I'm definitely not hypomanic, but I'm in that direction. And so, um, so that's another part of it, I guess. But, but honestly, what the, the answer to your question, Ruben, is how do you find the motivation? And how I find the motivation is that the podcast is extremely meaningful to me. I did it for, seven years without getting paid at all. And, and actually I spent money on the podcast. It's only been recently that I've, that I've made kind of, you know, a little bit of income from this. And uh, so my point is, is that I love to do this. It's, it doesn't feel like work. It's like asking someone, how do you find the motivation to veg out at seven and, you know, watch law and order? They're like, well, it's, it doesn't, it, it's so easy to do, and I like to watch Law & Order. Well, that's how I feel about podcasting. I, I never am like, oh, I got to do an episode. Okay, oh, well, let's procrastinate. I'll clean the kitchen again to put this off. It's never like that. I, I'm dying to do it all the time. It's, it's really a great thing, um, partially because I'm narcissistic <laughs> and love to bother other people with my stupid ramblings, you know? So it tickles that thing. But also, like, all the people I talk to on the podcast, guests, it's really just this wonderful socializing, fun um, activity that 
um, is uh, I, I don't, I've never had a problem with the motivation. Let's just put it that way. Um, I've seen people around me dip their toe into podcasting. I, I've had some friends who have watched me podcast and they're like, huh, maybe I should start a podcast that, you know, and I'll encourage them and I'll give them resources and I, I'll, you know, pump them up and yeah, you can do it. And da, da, da. and then when they do it, they'll do like five episodes and then that'll be it. And what I've learned is that for some people, whatever the deal is about podcasting, it's just not their thing. You know, it, it's sort of like when I was 16 or 17, I picked up a guitar and was obsessed with it. And within, I don't know, a few months, I could play guitar and was writing songs and, and performing and stuff. And every once in a while in my life, people, people would see me playing guitar or piano or drums or whatever, and they'd be like, oh, I always wanted to learn how to play the drums. Or I always wanted to learn how to play piano. And in my head, I'm like, no, you didn't. You, you, you thought you did. You wanted to want to is probably a better way to... You wanted to want to play guitar, but you didn't actually want to play guitar because when, when every guitarist out there, they didn't have to force themselves to play guitar. The thought entered their head, I want to play guitar. And so they just did it. They made it happen. You know, it wasn't like... I had extra time in my life and I was just sitting around doing nothing. It was like I had 10, 20 things to do in a day and guitar was just in the first few different priority slots. And so I got to it and I put other things off because I, I wanted to play guitar. Well, it's the same with podcasting and that's what I've seen with other people. It's like they, they want to be a podcaster or they want to want to podcast, but they don't really want to podcast. Because like I said, for me, the first seven years, no one was listening, or the, particularly the first few years, no one was listening. And I knew it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, think I, I think I knew like, well, maybe 100 people are listening, you know, and, and which was great. I mean, it's like, wow, 100 people, that's a big deal, right? And, uh, but, you know, I didn't, I, it was a lot of work. And, um, and I wasn't, let's just put it this, I wasn't getting much out of it other than the enjoyment of doing it, you know what I mean? And it's the same with guitar. Uh, I've never really gotten much out of my playing guitar or being a musician. It's it's much more uh, that I just love to do it, you know what I mean? I, now that I think about it, it's like, I wonder if podcasts didn't exist if I would just make podcasts anyway or just record myself. And actually, as I say that, um, going back to when I was a kid, I there's been different moments in my life where I would do this, where we would get a tape recorder and and press record, and we would just talk into the microphone that's on the boombox, and we would try to make talk radio shows or something. And and so uh, so so to me, it's not motivation. You also ask how much time does it take to prepare for each episode? On average, it really depends on the topic. There are easy episodes like this episode that I'm making today. I can just talk. I can just answer your questions off the top of my head. An episode like this um, will probably take one or two hours to prep because I have to, because there's a lot of um, computer time that has to be spent because I have to, I have to get your email. I mean, that's a whole process of just like, um, pulling your email off of my browser and putting it in a Word doc and then organizing it because it you know it has a bunch of gobbledygook in it and then I have to put it aside because I can't answer it right now. So this email from Ruben I probably got I don't know a couple months ago or something. So I have to put it in a place that I will remember and organize it and then once I sit down to do another episode I look through different emails and decide which one am I going to answer and. And so, you know, it takes time. So the, the minimum is going to be a couple hours. But the more difficult episodes, like the episode on narcissistic personality disorder I'm working on, it can take me two or three months to, <laughs> to work on it. Um, I, I'm guessing the narcissistic personality disorder episode will take me, I mean, I've already researched it, uh, you know, halfway just before I even started preparing, just because as a clinician, I'm interested in it. But I'm imagining that it'll probably be in the realm of 30 hours spread out over a month or two or something. 
I take the some deep dive topics I take very seriously. One because I want to, because I like to, I like to nerd out on stuff. But also, I I want to provide a good product to the patrons, and and also I am a clinician, and if I'm going to put something on the internet that's public for everyone to look at and to listen to, it needs to be up to snuff, and it needs to be professional. I can't just be like. Uh, narcissistic personality disorder. Blah, blah. I can't just I can't just talk off the top of my head um, because I'm going to sound like a dumbass in my field. You know, in my field, when when someone stands up at the podium and says, "I'm here to lecture a lecture about narcissistic personality disorder," they've put perhaps 20 years of their life into that topic, and so for me to stand up at the podium and talk about it. I want to be in that direction. I, I'm not. I'm not going to just talk off the top of my head and or spend four or five hours researching it and and just kind of have a general sense of it. You know, I I, I want to um, represent my field, I guess, in a certain way, or at the very least, to my colleagues, not seem like a hack. You know, which honestly, when I listen to other podcasts, I I see them do that, I, and it bothers me <laughs> when I hear other podcasts dip their toe into my field and or they're in my field frankly and they start talking about stuff i'm like wow like where'd you get that from and you know i i'm sure i do that too uh, a lot of episodes are, are not very re- well researched that i you know make so but I try not, especially again, if I'm going to title an episode Narcissistic Personality Story, I just really want it to be up to snuff. Anyway, uh, Ruben in Berlin also asked, what microphone do you have and which ones would you suggest? Uh, what is important on these to deliver a great voice quality? Do you use an equalizer or do, or do you do any editing after the episode to improve the audio? Um, this is a, a, a an interesting, people ask me this a lot. I, I'm a as I've been saying, I'm a musician and I'm, and I'm a singer. And since I was 16, so, you know, 30 years, I've been amassing audio equipment. Um, you know, I, I have, I have a whole room full of audio equipment. I, I have bags of microphones, you know, and because not only as a singer and a multi-instrument person, but I'm also like a solo artist in that I record my own music, you know, like I, 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 in my life I've had recording studios basically sort of haphazardly pieced together in my own house with a drum, drum set that is mic'd up, a real piano that's mic'd up, you know, bass amps, guitar amps, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, I, it's hard. So once I started doing podcasting, and so in the beginning of the podcast, actually what I did is I just put a microphone in the middle of the room and it was terrible. You could, you had tons of room noise and echo and stuff because I just, I, I didn't want to, I just thought that was the way you did it. Eventually I got to the point where I was like, you know what, let's, let's really make this a good audio quality. Cause, um, I, I think that it's, it's, you can tell, you know, when you listen to a podcast that has bad audio, it's noticeable, uh, to me, it is anyway. It's it's very difficult to listen to a podcast. You know, like, let me demonstrate it. So I'm going to put the microphone, my microphone, farther away from me. So so now I'm talking, I don't know, two feet from my microphone, and it, it's annoying. When I hear people do this, it, it's super annoying. In fact, I can't do it for too long because it'll bother me. But, but anyway... Um, so I, I use my Audio Technica four zero three three. It's a you know four zero three three. It's it's a standard studio vocal mic uh, for non pros. It's probably four or five hundred dollars. So I don't really recommend it. You can get USB microphones for fifty bucks, and I'm guessing that as long as you uh, follow certain principles, it'll be fine. Actually, my microphone that my my um, AT. 4033. I've been using for 20 years. And I, 20 years ago, I I just said, you know what, I'm going to buy an actual good microphone, (laughs) an actual good vocal microphone, because vocal microphones need to be particular. If if microphones for amps and stuff, you can use 
um, kind of cheap, standard cheap Shure microphones. But but I finally like I was like, well, I can't afford like a five thousand dollar microphone, but you know maybe a four hundred dollar microphone. And I love this microphone so much. Twenty years ago, that I wrote a song about it, and <laughs> now I think about it, it's like, why don't I just play that song? Um, the the, it, the song's called Microphone, and it's kind of a love song, but also kind of a love song to somebody, but also kind of a song about my love song for the microphone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, talk about a gear nerd, but it's sort of a weird song. I, I was really, at the time, experimenting with sort of harsh sounds, um, not like harsh, like dissonant, but um, uh, punchy sounds. So, uh, you know, take that into consideration as you listen. I won't play the entire song, but um, let, let's listen to that for a second. Okay, yeah, so that's Microphone. By, it's kind of a nice little tune. Um, kind of makes me want to re-record it without um, some of the production decisions that I made in that song. So that's me in my uh, home studio by myself uh, doing all those different weird things. Um, anyway, so uh, in terms of getting good quality, though, there's so many different things that goes that go into it microphone, the room you're in, the the ambient noise, the echo uh, qualities, like um, making sure you're, the room doesn't have an echo, doesn't have reverb or, you know, um, uh, you know, that, you know, the sound isn't bouncing off the walls and creating kind of a, a an echo chamber. Um, having a good stand for your microphone. A lot of these USB microphones, come with these really small, tiny little stands, and it, it can sometimes not be the best. I, as a singer, have a box full of top-end um, boom mics uh, stands that people use on stage and stuff, and so they're they're really easy to manipulate. They're, they're a bit big, and when people come over to podcast at my house, they're always just like, geez, you have a lot of equipment, because <laughs> most podcasters just buy a USB microphone and everything's fine. You know, I have pop screens. Um, I there's just a lot of things, and and then I I do uh, after after the recording is done, I I definitely do post processing on um, EQ compression. Um, I'll take out bad points that aren't sounding very good, either quality or what we're talking about or something. And so it it's really um it you know it takes time, but to me. Again, I don't want to put a substandard product out there. And so I, at, at like about five years ago, I just said, okay, every episode is, is, is going to be a good episode on its own. Um, I want every episode to be uh, 
something that I can that I'm proud of on some level. And so um, I, I think it's 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 worth the time to do. Uh, back in the day, it took me forever. Now I have a very streamlined process that is a routine of mine that, you know, I have my microphones all ready to go and it doesn't take me very long to set up. And, uh, oh, another thing is, is that whenever I have guests on the podcast, I, I coach them on how to use a microphone because it's a skill. The, the ability to talk into a microphone in an effective manner is, is a skill. It's not something that you just have automatically. You can't just put a microphone in someone's face and expect them to, to know how to use a microphone. It's actually complicated because it's not intuitive. You have to talk into a microphone. You, and normally what people want to do is they want to talk into the air, right? Cause you want to, you want to, it's essentially like if I was talking to you and instead of just talking to you face to face, I was constantly holding like, I don't know, an ice cream cone in front of my face as I talk to you. It, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't feel right, and so people freak out, and they'll either um, move their head away from the microphone, or they'll be too far away, or they'll be afraid of the microphone, or if they're in the microphone, they'll talk too quietly. Um, particularly women, I have found, uh, will will be extremely quiet. I don't know if you've ever noticed this when I have guests, but now I've been coaching them to, to, and I always say the same thing to, particularly to women. I'm like, you can't be too loud. What I, what I say is, is I say, I've never had a guest be too loud. I've never had someone too loud. I've only had people be too quiet. And even when I tell people to talk as loud as you possibly can, it's still not loud enough. It's weird. Like Berto and I are loud talkers. And so when we talk, there's no problem. <laughs> Most other people, even like Bob, his voice is super quiet too sometimes. And in and there's you know there's something about there's something to, something um, nice about having a soothing voice for sure. But when when you're dealing with microphones and earbuds and you know it's it's a different thing. You can't when someone's a quiet talker in real life, you can still hear them. There's something about the way the brain works and acoustics and stuff that. A quiet talker in real life is is totally fine, but on microphone it just it it's really hard to deal with. You have to crank the the gain and crank the volume, and the hiss goes up, and all their little clicks in their mouth get annoying, and uh, they start breathing in the microphone. And so there's just all these different things. I I have to coat. I spend a good five minutes basically teaching everyone how to use a microphone and. And and how not to fall into certain traps that I see a lot of people doing. It it takes a lot of time, so uh, and that was trial and error. Uh, I did not uh, just know that. It probably took me a few years to learn. I have to I have to actually teach every single person that comes on this podcast how to use a microphone, because in the beginning um, I wouldn't do that, and I would get the recording, and I would do my post processing, and I would realize that the the file or the, you know, the audio recording was unusable. It was like, oh man, we talked for two hours and that whole time they kept, they were too far away from the mic and it's super annoying to listen to because you can't really hear them. And I, and so I just learned from experience that it's better to coach them and get everything right than, than to get a bad recording and have to scrap the whole thing, you know? Anyway, let's take a break and when we get back, I'm going to answer some more patron emails. <music> All right, we're back from the break. As always, I tell people after the break to become a patron at patreon.com. That is the best way you can support the podcast. Also, we have our live show coming up on August 11, 2018 at uh, North City Bistro in Charline, Washington at 3 o'clock. And we'll be going to the North City Tavern afterwards around 5, 6 o'clock. For, uh, they have food at both places and drinks and karaoke and it'll be a good time so come on down also you can go to the facebook page to get more details all right patron anonymous patron wrote in about uh clients with first world problems uh she writes you talked a bit about your privilege in your racist clients episode and how many clinicians 
are, and how many clinicians are more privileged than their clients. But what happens when it is the client that is more privileged than the therapist? For instance, for a clinician that grew up in poverty and had to overcome significant barriers with regards to discrimination and pull themselves up by their bootstraps, can they really relate to a client who is more privileged than them? Do clients secretly do sorry, do clinicians secretly resent these privileged people? Do they roll their eyes regarding the client's entitlement and laziness? Do they think it's a massive waste of time to work with these privileged clients? How does a clinician switch from counseling homeless clients to talking about how to talking about things like finding oneself with a privileged client? How can someone who fled the U.S. from war uh, and becomes a counselor, how can they identify with someone's stupid first world problems? I just can't imagine a therapist honestly being able to relate to these superficial issues when they've had to overcome so many real issues. Okay, uh, end of email. Yeah, um, marginalized therapists um, are, it's a thing. And really, um, uh, everyone, there's very few people that don't come from at least one marginalized group. Uh, there uh, and there are certainly people who come from much more marginalized group many you know and, and marginalization is, has a greater impact on their life for sure and yeah it's it's an interesting question um but to me talented therapists are above that i guess um the, the talent good therapists and it's not all therapists they just have an innate love and compassion for their clients that, for the most part, supersedes any negative thought about the client, even if the client is exhibiting privilege. People often ask me a, a sort of version of this question, a sort of broader question of, you know, don't you ever get sick of hearing about people's problems? And don't you want to just shake them and tell them to snap out of it? And really, and what I always say to that is, no, I I, I never get sick about hearing about people's problems. I wouldn't have become a therapist if that was the sort of person I was. Um, plus, most people have a sort of distorted view of what therapy is like. Um, you know, on TV and in movies, it's sort of a trope to have a counseling montage where someone's just complaining all the time and they're just a big bummer and you know, they just mope around, woe is me, I, my life sucks. And, I, you know, and therapy is not like that. Uh, most people actually come into my office, don't feel entitled to complain because our society beats that out of them. Uh, our society tells people to keep it to themselves and not talk about it. So if anything, I'm spending much more time trying to get people to complain than the opposite. So uh, and when when people are genuinely complaining and genuinely venting, it 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 engages a part of me that I think is probably present in everyone, which is just a a compassion, a caring, a, a sadness, a, a connection with another person that that it has nothing. It, there's nothing about that experience for me that's like, oh boy, here we go again, another person complaining. Now clients will say that they'll be like. I'm so sorry I'm complaining and I'll say, "Whoa, like don't shame yourself. You have you have real suffering in your life and you deserve to have someone hear that." So, you know, don't don't say that to yourself. Don't shame yourself for doing what is healthy and doing something that you deserve. It doesn't bother me at all to uh be here for you in, in this moment. It's it's a privilege to be with you in this moment. So, so really that the notion that like even a first world you know person with first quote unquote first world problems it's not like it's you know well, what's an example um like uh, like that TV show Gypsy actually kind of had some clients like that if you watch that on Netflix but anyway there there's there's this depiction in the media where it, someone sits down and is like Oh my God. So this person at work was doing this thing. And then I was like, Oh my God, you're so dumb. And you know, it's, it's, that's not what therapy is like. Um, that's a cartoon of a human being. Uh, people come in to say that they're sad and depressed and 
their relationships aren't going well and they feel alone and they are worried about the future and they regret things they've done and they have worries about their children and they um, are they wish they could get back to a better time or or whatever it's it it's it's not it's not an annoying uh, process but really a broader question that i think you're asking is 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 really what's the nature of suffering you know what what is suffering can and can we compare the suffering of one person with another person's suffering you know there there i'm a super privileged human being uh, compared not only to my country but really to the world and particularly to history and there are times when I am completely freaking out and if someone came up to me and said oh if you're privileged you're a first world problem I'd smack him in the face I'd be like fuck you my you know I don't yeah maybe we can compare and maybe there are people worse off but I'm suffering right now I'm freaking out I don't know what to do and so the notion of like my freaking out is somehow completely discountable as opposed to someone else's freaking out. Just, it, I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone really thinks that way. I think there's a, a general cultural notion around right now. Cause you know, we're starting to talk much more about class and privilege. And so there's this inherent heuristic in there around like, privileged people don't have the problems that marginalized people do. And yes, that's true. But on an individual basis, so when you look at larger groups, you know, like when you have, uh, when you're white and your parents went to college and your parents have good money and they have the resources to give you good food and good medical care and coach you for the SATs. You know, yes, those are all privileges. But the notion that someone who grows up in those neighborhoods, you know, a 17-year-old girl who has, um, you know, has all those privileged aspects, the, the notion that she has, she's experienced no suffering in her life is just not my experience. It's, it's weird, the capacity for the world to make everyone suffer, uh, regardless of your privilege. Uh, is privilege a thing? Yeah. Are marginalized people probably suffering more? Uh, probably. But there are people in marginalized classes, you know, extremely poor, uneducated, uh, minority status that are dealing with marginalization and it sucks and it's not fair to them. And there are things getting in their way, but they, some individuals are totally happy and content. You know, to take someone who is there, they work at a laundromat and it's the only job they can get. And, you know, it's not, they'd rather have a different job, but they're at the laundromat and they're interacting with, uh, with customers. And um, I'm thinking about this because uh, recently um, I had some laundry that our, um, my washer broke. And so I had to actually go to the laundromat. And it'd been so long since I'd been there. And there, there's a woman there. She's like, you know, if you just drop your, your stuff off, you know, I'll do it for you for a fee. And I was just like, oh, man, because I didn't have time to just sit there at the laundromat. You know, because it's one thing when it's at home, you can sort of set it and forget it. And I, I, when I do laundry at home, it's, it's like a five-day process, you know, because I forget that I left laundry in the thing. And then, it you know, it gets moldy and da-da-da. But anyway, so I just dropped it off and man, do these people or this woman anyway, uh, fold my clothes like nothing else. I mean, everything was folded meticulous. I was like, are you a robot woman? Like, how did you do that? But um, so anyway, I'm thinking, and, and because my washer was broken for a while, I got to know her pretty well. As soon as I walked in, oh, Kirk, what do you got there? Let's weigh it. You know, she was always really cool fellow Asian sister. Anyway, so I'm thinking about her. She, um, I don't know her circumstances. Maybe this is her dream job. Who knows? But the point is, is that um, she seemed extremely happy. Let's just put it that way. Uh, she seemed like she was enjoying life. She had her 
TV show that was playing in the background when she was bored and she um, liked interacting with people and um, and she didn't even seem to be that concerned about money. Like there was um, times where she'd be like, um, ah, you know, let's take, let's take 20 bucks off that bill or <laughs> I, don't, I can't remember the exact circumstances, but she, she just seemed like she had figured it out, you know? So uh, now maybe she's a privileged person. I don't even know. So I can't make a super, you know, strong statement here. But my point is, is that the, the notion that, that marginalization equals suffering is also not necessarily true. Um, or, you know, can a super privileged, you know, going back to my example of a 17 year old girl, she grows up, her parents are upper, upper middle class. They both, her parents both went to college there. The parents are giving her all, you know, she doesn't need to work. Uh, She has connections. She's getting SAT coaching. She has connections to the right university. Her parents are going to pay for everything. And, you know, her career is, is definitely in the super upper class realm, but she could be raped. She could be abused. She could be made to feel like she has to be perfect. She could be made to feel worthless if she doesn't get into Harvard. She could, she could experience extreme suffering in the middle of a privileged life. And that's perhaps the best thing I can say is that when, when people come into my office and they're quote unquote first world and arguably all my clients are first world, uh, except for the pro bono ones. Um, and even the pro bono ones you could say are first world because you know, Seattle, it's just, it's a, it's a first world city. (laughs) And so, uh, when they start telling me, when these extremely privileged people start telling me about their lives, it is not a walk in the park. You know, there, people, uh, there's this notion, it's like, oh, you're first world, you, you have no problems, everything's fine, everything's been given to you. And, you know, that, that, that's, an, that's a weird narrative to me. Um, certainly privilege is a thing, and certainly it's real and measurable and and needs to be looked at, and we should endeavor to try to not have those kinds of situations where some people are privileged over others. Absolutely. But the notion that someone from a privileged class is not suffering is is just not my experience. And sure, some clients come to me who, quote-unquote, are trying to find themselves. and But at the same time, they wouldn't say, Oh, my life is terrible, and I deserve tons of sympathy. You know, that's not their attitude. They're just like, "Well, I have a lot of things to be thankful for," and you know, I've just sort of reached a point in my life where I just kind of want to find myself because I haven't really, I I don't really know. I'm, I feel aimless in life, and I don't really know what to do. Um, The notion that I would look at that person and go, "Oh, you privileged piece of shit," (laughs) you know, is just. It just doesn't uh, make any sense. Now, your question, though, patron, was what if someone comes from a war-torn country, immigrates to the United States, becomes a therapist, and they talk with someone who is of a privileged class trying to find themselves? Um, That is actually your question. Uh, And I don't know the answer to that because I don't come from a war-torn country. But I do know people who come from uh, much more difficult circumstances than I came from growing up. And um, they have the same attitude that I do. Um, They have, uh, as therapists, a compassion, a love, a caring for human beings that, I mean, because if, if if therapists were like that, that would imply that we would all have some kind of gauge about how much suffering someone is going through in terms of, is it justified suffering? I guess that's its thing. It's like every clinician would be walking around thinking like, how justified is that person's terror? How justified is that person's sadness? How justified is that person's grief? How justified is that person's trauma? You know, no clinicians think think that way, at least that I know of, because it it doesn't make any sense clinically because 
when, for example, some, there are women who go through brutal rapes and have, do not have PTSD. I mean, they're not happy that they went through it, but afterwards they're not, they don't go into shock. They don't have a traumatic reaction. They are, they're not, again, they're not happy about it and they're a little shook, shaken up for a bit, but for whatever reason, the way that their brain works or the way that it, the way that it happened or the way they uh, sort of dealt with it or their, their history or whatever, it just, it, it was a bad moment, but it, it didn't stick with them. You take another person who is on the scale of things, um, a sexually assaulted in a less, in a less severe way, um, you know, I'm not going to speculate as to, I'm not going to make something up, but, but something that's not brutal rape, you know, something that is, is more uh, subdued or something. And given that person, the way that they processed it, the circumstances around it, that person's background, that person's biology, they will have PTSD the rest of their life. I, I had a client like this actually a long time ago, and that's what I learned from her was that it doesn't matter what the degree of the abuse or assault or um, incident is. It it totally depends on how someone perceives it and the way their body reacts, essentially. And th- there are a number of different factors that play into that. And so, so it's suffering is very personal. And one one person will suffer greatly in a particular situation and the other person will not. And any clinician knows that, hopefully. Um, having said that, <laughs> I was just talking with supervisees yesterday around the notion that in my field, a lot of people will look at someone who's been sexually abused, you know, say um, there's a family, a father who is molesting the children and there's an, and then the, the father gets arrested, goes to jail, and then the whole family goes into therapy. And there's this, there's this shortcut that a lot of therapists will take, whereas they'll just, they'll just identify all the victims of the sexual abuse as having PTSD. And that doesn't make any sense because you can go through difficulty and not have PTSD. You can have other, you can even have other trauma reactions, dissociation, depression, panic. And so PTSD is just one thing. And um, so I guess there is kind of a problem like that in, in, in my field, but, but anyway, um, the last thing I'll say is that the phrase first world problems doesn't exist in my world. It, it might, other clinicians might say such things. I don't know. But I've never heard a clinician in my circle say, oh, first world problems. I've never heard them say that because it, it's, it's really condescending and mean in, in my estimation. Um, in fact, there was, that, there was that internet meme that was going around that had that woman crying and it's like, first world problems, you know. Um, my phone uh, loses charge too quickly or something. And I, I never liked that meme because I just thought, you know, our society already shames people for, for reaching out for help or for crying for that matter. And I feel like we don't need another thing to, uh, you know, I, I feel like we don't need to use jokes to shame people for having their own sadness um, you know, you, a super privileged person can suffer just like anybody else. They can be scared. They can lose, uh, someone to death. Their, their pets can die whom they're very connected to. They can feel alone and disconnected and, um, aimless and, um, a lack of meaning in their life. And, and so it doesn't, it, it just does, suffering supersedes all, all groups, you know, it, it supersedes all group lines, you know, take, take, uh, let's think of someone that's the most privileged person on the planet, you know, Donald Trump, perhaps you could argue is the most privileged person on the planet right now. And if, if Trump's wife died, uh, Melania, and he was crying about it, and it was genuine crying. 
would you have sympathy for him? And if you, if you don't have sympathy for him, then you probably shouldn't become a therapist, right? So I'll just end with that. All right, please take care of yourself. You deserve to vent. Everyone deserves to have their suffering acknowledged and cared for. It doesn't matter if you're uh, upper class or lower class or of a, of, a, of a privileged group or a marginalized group. All suffering is suffering. And most societies, particularly American society, shames people for reaching out. And that's not fair to anyone. It's just not fair. We all deserve to be heard and to um, be supported. So, you know, take care of yourself because you deserve it. (laughs) 